Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at ChampaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Judy was boring. Hello. Then, Judy discovered ChampaCasino.com. It's my little escape. Now, Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby. Mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa. Take it easy, Judy. <laughs> The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Unhappy, darling? Yes, completely. <laughs> your hand is as cold as a dead fish. My love. That is a dead fish. <laughs> Wake the children. <laughs> All right, I'm awake. Welcome to a special Halloween episode of Behind the Screen. Today, we're talking with brothers Michael Dana and Jeff Dana, composers of the recently released Adams Family animated movie, featuring a voice cast that includes Oscar Isaac, Charlize Theron, Snoop Dogg, and Bette Midler. Michael is the Academy Award-winning composer of Life of Pi, and Jeff's solo film credits include Silent Hill and The Kid Stays in the Picture. Together, they have done extensive TV work, as well as features including the scores for The Breadwinner, the Good Dinosaur, and Pixar's upcoming animated adventure, Onward. I'm Carolyn Jardina. Welcome to the Hollywood Reporter's Behind the Screen. Michael and Jeff Dana, thank you for joining us. Pleasure to be here. Thanks for having us. So do you used to watch The Addams Family as kids? Oh, yes. <laughs> Absolutely. That's in the sweet spot of my youth. Definitely on our little black and white TV, it was a staple for sure. And I, I loved it. It was different than anything else. And it had a kind of darkness to it that uh, piqued interest in me. Did you have a favorite character? You know, I think like in the film that we've done, Wednesday, I have a major crush on her. I just, she's amazing. And it's just, I love her sense of humor, the darkness and humor. But as a kid, I think Morticia kind of caught my eye. Uh, (laughs) Something about that characterization. I love the music. I love the harpsichord and organ that I heard and that they literally played on the show. So yeah, it was a big favorite of mine. And I'm a little older than Jeff. And so I think he might have kind of missed it. Do you remember it as a kid? I absolutely remember that song. Right. Yeah, I remember the show, and uh, I liked Lurch, but I was sort of terrified of him. But I was remember it still on when you were a yeah, kid. It was on after school, and I can remember going out to play afterwards, and the song would just ring on and on in my head more than you know the episodes were that song. You know my young musical bent, I guess. So a lot of fun for us to circle back in 2019 and have our own crack at it. 
Right. Well, why don't we start with that? The first cue we're going to listen to is Welcome to the Adams Family. And right. that was your take on the tune that we all know so well. How did you approach that? Well, you know, Conrad Vernon, one of our co-directors, Greg Tiernan, he you know, starts the movie in the old country in some unspecified European location. And he said, let's have some fun with the, you know, old seat of the family house there in something like southeast Europe. So he said, you know, let's do a gypsy thing. Let's let's color this whole thing with a gypsy vibe. It will separate it from the other scores in the other films. I think we can have a lot of fun with that. And so the first track here is the main title sequence, and we just took the themes and turned them on their head into gypsy mode, gypsy rhythms, gypsy instrumentation, and uh, had a lot of fun moving through two or three different uh, musical passages with it. And it gave me a chance to play some of my gypsy guitars. You know, Mike's the keyboard man in the family. I'm the guitar man. And so it gave us a chance to uh, really explore that stuff. And particularly, we featured a Bulgarian tambura, which is uh, a great Eastern European folk guitar, and something called a banduria, which is this 12-string Spanish, little Spanish instrument, which we use for a ton of the melodies. It's a bit of a bear to play. The demonic to keep it in tune and stuff, but we had it was a lot of fun, and those are featured heavily in this first track. What was the overall approach to the film when you first started talking with the directors? Michael, do you want to start? Yeah, so we definitely wanted to get this kind of vaguely Eastern European gypsy idea. We wanted to mix in some of the kind of gothic elements, the pipe organ and harpsichord, which is kind of my department, the slightly out-of-tune Victorian piano, those kind of elements, and a bit of kind of the emo Victorian romanticism. So there's a little bit of that mixed in with this Eastern European. So that's kind of the cocktail that we're working with. One of our main go-to guys, this percussionist named Quinn, took apart all these Victorian clocks Mm. and made this unbelievable kind of percussion instrument out of it so it just kind of it would cover a whole floor of these parts of clocks and hitting parts of them and so a lot of the stings and a lot of the percussion moments in the film are the sounds of springs and chimes and things from these old clocks which just it really fit just beautifully the feeling we were trying to create and this was recorded here in Los Angeles it was recorded here in the building we're sitting in right now, Warner Brothers, at the Eastwood Scoring Stage. That's where we are. Would you talk about some of the other instruments that you incorporated into the score? I think that's pretty much a good summary. A lot of gypsy guitar stuff. Um, you played a lot of different guitars. Like, a, a, Yeah. Jeff has a s- stable of, it's got to be eight. No, no. Ten? 15. Okay, 15. (laughs) Like I was saying, there's 15. And if you line them all up, they're like a real motley-looking crew of weird... Some are double-strung metal strings. Some are 
cat yeah. gut and they're, they're wood bodies there and they're from all over the world and they're really just a really unique sound that kind of all our scores we do together whether it's breadwinner or good dinosaur or whatever you hear that sound in you know it's kind of part of our the essence of our sound and this film really features those sounds it just fit beautifully with this kind of eastern european thing we were doing and we cheat the geography a lot i use portuguese guitars like a quattro and the citern which is more you know uk irish celtic sort of thought of, you know thought of in that sense ukulele we used a thing called a tipple that I found that was made in 1932 in Chicago, and it was it's basically like a 10-string ukulele. With, it's you know another one of these things you spend as much time tuning as you spend playing. But So we did a lot of cross-pollination as well, playing gypsy things in gypsy mode, but with other countries' instruments, and we had a lot of fun. What were a couple of your favorite guitars that you used for this film? Well, the, the two main axes, I would say, for this were the Bulgarian tambora, which we sought out, and we had a great generous gentleman who was going to Bulgaria bring me one back that I just sort of bought sight unseen, gave him the money and said, find me a good one. And he bought me a beautiful instrument. So that one, and then this Banduria I was telling you about that has the melody in a lot of these pieces, a very unusual sound, kind of like a mandolin, but deeper and odder. So those were maybe the two main axes, but we're always trying to find interesting ways, different ways to do things. And those guitars help. And you used a number of those guitars in a cue called Let the Games Begin. Would you like to introduce that one? Right. Pugsley on his rocket, and every kid needs a rocket at home. That's a a really fun sort of first real action vignette that lets us even further into the crazy, hyperactive world of Pugsley and the Adams children. In that cue, one of the things we do is something we like to do a lot with folk music. Like Mike mentioned, we did it on breadwinner we do it a lot is where we'll take sort of a folk piece of the folk mode with maybe six or eight players playing those instruments and then over top of that and in the case of this cube bursting in and out is a full orchestra playing in the same mode the same rhythms but adding giant scope to it so you'll hear that in this piece there's all this guitar stuff flying along with percussion and fiddle and some great fiddle work there by mark robertson violin player and then it's like the kicking open the doors of the concert hall and in bursts this orchestra for eight or ten bars and then out again. And this cue has a lot of that kind of going back and forth and some crazy percussion work by our man Quinn as well. And Michael, you played quite a bit on the score as well. Would you talk about that? Yeah. So Jeff and I played in bands when we were younger, and I played synths and so on. But I also, working my way through college, I was a church organist. So you can see how the Adams family, as a kid, really influenced my whole life path, really. Harpsichord as well. So I played harpsichord on this. I played the Victorian uh, kind of slightly out of tune piano. I played church organ, although Aaron Shows, who is a far better player than I, played all the really 
tricky stuff. But that was really fun to kind of bring in the uh, organ part of my development of my life. I spent many years in the organ pit. And uh, yeah, so that was really fun to revisit here. The next cue we're going to listen to, I believe you played on this one, is called Wednesday's Wish. Would you like to introduce that cue? Yeah, that's one where also played a bit of glass harmonica on this, very simple melody. Um, so it's got this idea of Wednesday's character, this kind of little bit melancholic, but with a whip snap wit and kind of that Victorian and kind of Gothic sense to it and a little bit melancholic and, you know, a little bit of the scent of the graveyard drifting over the whole thing. The next cue is Give My Creatures Life, and uh, Jeff, I believe you've described this as old-school Vincent Price horror music. Would you elaborate? (laughs) Yeah, that was um, a thing where, uh, actually the feature thing, the first thing you hear is that musical saw, which is another one of the colors in this score that was a lot of fun to use. You know, it's the Adams Family. We can go, you know, we can go old-school a little bit with that aspect of it. So that's the first thing. There's a ton of organ, then that was your... You know, your thought Yeah, and there's on a it. bit of a dop of the hat to... Um, um, powerhouse. Powerhouse, yeah. Right. That That's kind of just a little bit of how the cue starts, which, of course, people of the last few generations introduced to the sound of powerhouse through Bugs Bunny, all the uh, building of factory scenes. That sound is also really deep in all of us kids from that era. So... Wednesday is here in science class, bringing a frog back to life. Spoiler alert. And uh, so there's the sound of her building this whole, uh, all the old school Frankenstein gizmo that she's going to bring the creature back to life with. So she's building it. And we have the sound of dip it, dip it, dip it, dip it. We have the old powerhouse. We got saxophones honking away. Again, kind of a little bit of a callback to that 30s sound. And then, yeah, the, the saw is featured. There's a lot of organ, which, you know, of all powerful instruments, this beats like a SG through a high-watt amp any day. Like, there's just <laughs> nothing like the feeling of being alone in a church at night in the dark and playing full organ, hitting the pedals and two manuals. And it just, that is the most powerful instrument on earth. So there's a bit of that in here, too. And the orchestra flailing way. Yeah, it was a really fun one to do. You end the movie with a cue called Get Out. Michael, would you like to describe that one? 
That one's fun because you get to hear the theater organ. Our pal, composer Nathan Barr, rescued the Fox Wurlitzer theater organ, which was built, installed originally in 1928 and tragically was removed, stored away, and Nathan was able to get a hold of it. He literally built a studio around it, and it's the most incredible place. Yeah. And uh, it's called Bandrika Studios. So we went out there and we played most of the organ parts on this theater organ. On this cue, I think you can hear it fairly clearly, the kind yeah. of the theater organ aspect, which is, you know, the sound of a theater organ often has some vibrato to it, a little bit of, there's a, a lot of bells and whistles literally on a theater organ compared to a church pipe organ, let's say. And you can hear it here in this piece. It's a beautiful instrument and we're really grateful that we were able to play it and even more grateful that he was able to save this piece of history. Sure. Yeah, this is an organ that was in The Wizard of Oz, The Sound of Music, right up to Avatar, I think. So this, the history of Hollywood is traced on the keys of this organ. It's pretty amazing. And what Nathan's done with it is absolutely remarkable. It has to be seen to be believed. So we were happy to have a movie where we could really go with it. So this is, yeah, it's kind of a tango, which would be something that would be very at home on a theater <laughs> organ back in the day. So it's, uh, yeah, it's a last family tango for our happy ending spoiler alert. Let's talk a bit about your creative process when the two of you are composing together. Does one of you pick one cue, one the other? Do you work on them together? We'll usually divide up what the themes are, you know, get an, an overview of what the cornerstones of the theme have to be. You know, we'll need a theme for Wednesday. We'll need a theme for the Adams Family, for example, in this film. We'll need to, at some points, you know, tip the hat to the television theme, which the audience expects, and we were happy to give them that familiar tune throughout the score in some places as well. So we'll divide up where those building blocks are, and then we'll just start, and we'll dive in, and I'll take one, he'll take another, I'll take the next, he'll take the next, and then we'll just start playing them for each other, and sometimes, you know, we'll cross-pollinate ideas right away, or sometimes we'll just comment on each other's themes until we think they're really strong and then we just dive into the film and start scene by scene yeah and we and we send files back and forth sometimes you know it'll just be oh that's great or sometimes it'll be hey send me that file let me play around with the second half of this theme the second eight bars i got an idea there and send it back so there's some of that and then it ends up all mixed up so that you're ending up because, you know, in the motivic way of writing film music, you end up quoting different themes, that, you know, within cues. And so you go from this motif to this motif and you'll, you know, and by the end of it, you often can't remember who began this motif because it's so much a part of your own work. And I've often thought, like, very often the best cues that we write are when I'm arranging one of Jeff's themes or Jeff's arranging one of mine, I think that's when the most interesting stuff can happen. 
things that you wouldn't think about. And that's the upside of, of a collaboration is that you just have, uh, you know, somebody, and, and we obviously we come from a very similar background, but we took, even from early on, we took these two different paths. I was more in keyboard, classical, Jeff was more guitar, pop, even though we started with the exact same church choir and piano lessons very quickly we kind of diverge into these two paths but really not that far apart we grew up listening to the same things our parents would put on mm. you know so that stuff is just deep inside both of us so even though that we have these very similar backgrounds and upbringing and just makeup and view of the world and everything but there are profound differences and so Jeff has a way of looking at a cue that I don't. And he'll say, oh, you know, you're missing this aspect. Oh, yeah, right. Okay. And then I do the same thing. And we have various strengths and weaknesses that we both know pretty well now. And so I think we're able to exploit it to the fullest. So you really get, like, the best at all times as opposed to, you know, if you do a score on your own, there's areas where you just are a little weaker that never get really worked to their best. And this way, everything is worked to its best. Like, I'm pretty yeah. confident about that. Like, at the end of the day, you listen to the score, and it's strong from start to finish because of that, because of that collaboration. Well, let's talk a bit about your background. The both of you were born and raised together in Canada. I know you had a lot of musical instruments when you were growing up. How did you get into the business then? We were both given these piano lessons when we were young. Mike got the good piano teacher. <laughs> All right. Firstborn, golden child, you know how it is. So he got Mr. Gunton, who was uh, uh, Mike still speaks fondly of. Oh, yeah. Um, by the time I came along and it was my turn, my parents were singing the choir at a church, and I think they just thought, oh, well, you know, we got this uh, organist who's now our friend. We see him socially. We'll just throw Jeff at this guy. Well, I ended up going to him, too. He, oh, I didn't yeah, know that. Yeah, no, that's what happened is that basically Mr. Jim Gunton, he, at a certain point, he said, no, I'm only good with, like, up to a certain level. Oh, okay. And so I got booted over to Hopkins I as had well. no like, idea you endured it, Mr. Hopkins. Oh, yes. <laughs> so what happened was Mr. Hopkins, I'm guessing at this point in time, very talented guy, I'm guessing he didn't want to be teaching reluctant, daydreaming kids you know, to, how to play piano. I mean, this guy was like way beyond it. He was a master organist. And here come these kids in grade three, four, and five playing their scales wrong. So I didn't have a very good time there it, to, to cut a long, torturous story short. I really hated it. I can remember saying to my mom, I hate music. I want to quit music. I don't ever make me go see Mr. Hopkins again. And so finally, I got to quit right around the time that I heard rock and roll all night on the radio when I was about 10, <laughs> true confessions time, and went, oh, wow, two electric guitars, two Marshalls. That is a really awesome sound. And Mike was in a band by then. And so when our singer has an extra guitar, I'll, I'll bring it over. And he showed me my first few chords. Down by the River by Neil Young, I believe, was the first song he showed me. So and those literally are still the only chords I know. <laughs> I, have, I have not developed at all since then. Next thing you know, I was 16 hours a day. I had that thing in my hand, just uh, sleeping with that guitar and loved it. Off I went in that direction. You know, guitars, pop songs. I think really what it 
taught me was melodic efficiency because I spent 10 years in this band trying to write hit songs and thinking about how people absorb melodies quickly in their car on an AM radio, how you have to speak the phrase, you know, the first four, eight notes is super important. Just it's all I thought about between 14 and 23 really was how to be the best guitar player I could be and how to write these songs that had concise, memorable melodies. And so that was kind of a useful thing when finally scoring came around later on, film scoring, because really in a film score, you don't have long, long stretches to quote things. You need to be concise and get in there, state your motif, and sometimes get right out. And that really turned out to be a gift that I didn't know I was nurturing when I was young and trying to write rock and roll all night. Yeah, and I spent age 14 to 23, you know, working on voice leading, Renaissance counterpoint, and, you know, orchestration. So, as well as being in a band, and for me, progressive rock of that time in the 70s, the early Genesis, King Crimson, that kind of thing, that's why I'm a musician, really. Those, those things, that marriage between melodic pop music and folk music and orchestral classical tradition, that kind of marriage of those disparate elements is something that really, you know, to me was the most important thing in life. And I think I've continued that urge to combine things that aren't really supposed to be together, kind of spread out into other cultures and so on and mixed things brought in elements from different musical cultures and mixed them together. So, so yeah, we, we spent our kind of formative years doing different things that are both incredibly important, powerful tools now that we're both film composers. So it's you can kind of see our areas of expertise in that way. And obviously, both of us can do the other thing as well. But those years when your teenage brain is like absorbing things, that's when all the wiring in your brain happens. That's your fundamental nature of, I think, of what you spend those years doing. It's really who you are. And then before that, when we were growing up, you know, our parents, they met in musicals in high school. In Winnipeg. In Winnipeg. They sang uh, Gilbert and Sullivan, Mm -hmm. you know, light opera, our dad, when we grew up, we would hear him practicing singing all the time. He sang uh, semi-professionally. So we heard a lot of repertoire and jazz, strangely enough, which, you know, mm. our dad had has, and there still is this amazing collection of 78s, all of which seemed to bounce off both of us. It's kind of weird because, you know, you hear all this stuff as a kid and we could name every single record, but yeah, some of it really sinks in and, you know, Handel's Messiah, my father would sing, and that that really just struck a note. Like, that was something that was magical to me. Gilbert and Sullivan, yeah, it was okay. The jazz, I couldn't, I didn't even hear it. I couldn't hear it. It just still continues to bounce off my ears. It just doesn't speak to me. We're probably not the team to call for your deep jazz <laughs> <laughs> So what was the project that attracted you to film composing? Well, so I went to the University of Toronto and studied composition. I had no idea where I was headed with that, unlike young people I talk to now who have, you know, a 30-year plan figured out. I just sort of drifted aimlessly into studying composition because I wanted to. I had no idea where that was headed. I have no interest in film music at that time. Absolutely none. In fact, the film music I heard was 
often very jazz-based, and so had no interest or attraction to it. And the kind of big orchestral scores, yeah, they just didn't appeal to me. So it wasn't on my radar at all. And then growing up in a suburb of Toronto, there was no access to that world anyway, or there didn't seem to be. So it just seemed like some other planet, basically. So I ended up being a composer in residence at a planetarium. So I did you know, end up being hired with my degree, strangely enough. But while I was in my last year of, one of the things I did through college was do music and sound effects for various theater groups around campus, which I really loved. I loved the theater people. I liked the feeling of being part of a team and having music as being part of something as opposed to just the music itself. So I really responded to that and liked the people and I liked the spirit of it. I liked opening night. I liked the feeling of a show and that kind of thing. And then, yeah, one of the people that was writing plays was Atta McGoyan, who ended up making a film and said, hey, do you want to do music for it? And I didn't know anything about how to do that, but we just kind of made it up as we went along. Again, a nice thing about being so far away from Hollywood and traditional film music where there's, there were certainly at that time ways to, that you are supposed to write film music and rules and concepts and things. We had no idea. We just applied our theater shows to film and Right from the beginning, I was mixing medieval music and, you know, West African drumming because that's what we did in theater. That's how I ended up falling into film scoring. And then, you know, Jeff and I are at the same time were kind of working in bands together. And there was one project where I needed some guitar playing on it. And then I said, there's a lot for me to do here. Why don't you write a couple of these cues? And he just immediately, like, knocked it out. Like, the first cue, I remember the first cue he brought in. It was like, oh my God, that's, that's an amazing melody. Like, how did you do, like you, and it just really was incredible. And so right from the beginning, kind of without even me explaining it or anything, he was really just naturally gifted at it. So yeah, that's kind of how it just sort of, it really was accidental. It's such an embarrassing story to tell now because Young people want to be composers. I get emails from people that are 13 and 14, like, this is what I want to do, and what are the steps? And it's like, I, don't ask me, man, because I, <laughs> I, I, when I was 13, I was... You want to be Tony Banks? I wanted to be Tony Banks and, and, or Keith Emerson, but I had no, no plan whatsoever. So there you go. Well, the two of you have worked together and you've worked solo, but I have to ask uh, another team of brothers that worked together recently are um, Harry Gregston Williams and Rupert Gregston Williams. And as you know, they were on our podcast series a few months ago and uh, they had a playful challenge for the two of you. So is there anything you'd like to say to them? (laughs) Well, we're bringing uh, Adam's family and onward to the table. In this corner, (laughs) with Adam's family and onward, just the Danis, and we'll uh, yeah, we'll wade into the fight with these two. And why do they need two names anyway? Why? why, (laughs) We we just we're we're the Danis, like simple as that. I don't know. I I have trouble with the the labeling right from the beginning. It's very bloated. It is. It's 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 bloated. It it needs some editing. 
Okay, well, before we wrap, I did want to ask you about Onward, which is why we're here at the Eastwood scoring stage, which you're working on that. That's Pixar's next animated film. What can you tell us about that project? Onward is an amazing and unusual film. It is really just, you know, sometimes you'll see a film, and Pixar does a lot of these, that where you just go, okay, that is just coming from left field. This is an absolutely original idea in a crazy world. And Onward is all those things. It's really exciting to work on. And it's weirdly autobiographical for us. It's about two brothers growing up in the suburbs in what looks suspiciously like an enchanted version of the 70s without a father. They've lost their father. And so that's, you know, our father died when uh, when I was 13. Michael was 19. So there's just this weird synchronicity between our lives and these characters. Yeah, even in the film they say, your father was an accountant. And we're like, oh, that's... Yeah, that's, yeah, that's what our father started yeah. out doing as well. So it's just an absolutely... And I don't know if Dan Scanlon, our gifted director, I don't know if when he met us, he looked at the two of us and went, oh, okay. I, I'm gonna, I think that they'll find something here for this, these two brothers, this story about two brothers. And we're having a whale of a time on it. It's an amazing movie, and we can't wait for the world to see it. Anything you can tell us about your approach to the music yet? We'll let the Gregson Williams have another podcast, <laughs> and then we'll come back and <laughs> blow them out of the water. Thank you so much for joining us today. (laughs) Always a pleasure. Thanks for having us, Carolyn. When you visit Arizona, time is measured in moments, not minutes. Like the moment your work stress disappears as you kayak through the canyons. Or the moment you discover the life-changing effects of prickly pear chocolate. But nothing beats the moment you see the Grand Canyon for the very first time. Visit a new state of mind. Learn more at hereyouareaz.com. 